Good morning, everybody. My name is John Bridges from Guild Financial Advisory, Masters of Finance. It is my great pleasure to bring to you today Andy Sylvester, editor of City AM. City AM, as you all know, is a very interesting publication. It is available for free in print form. It's also available online. It's not thrust into your hand as some free newspapers are. It's picked up by people who choose to have it. And it's downloaded by people who wish to find out what's going on. So it really does, as a result, punch substantially above its weight. How's that for an introduction? That's not bad. Thank you, John. Bad? It's a pleasure to be here. Is it? Um, yeah, I think that's that, that's that's how we like to think of ourselves. You know, obviously the the media landscape in London, the business media landscape in London has been established for a very long time with obviously the granddaddy of them all, the FT, sitting at the heart of it. But we like to think that we, we're a bit more of a, I suppose, a local paper that speaks more to the city of London um, and tries to capture, I suppose, some of the personality which makes the square mile and indeed Canary Wharf these days um, such an extraordinary and exciting and vibrant place to be. Um, and my goodness, isn't it good to see it back after the pandemic? <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. I picked up your newspaper this morning at my local underground station on the way here. And I've had a quick scan of it. And the CBI, yes. uh, once again, has coverage. Um, we have to be careful on what we say about the C- CBI for very obvious reasons. But I'm going to be brutal and say something that's always occurred to me. The CBI established by the small businessmen for the interests of the small businesses, of which there are millions in this country, but largely dominated, in recent years at least, by the large companies. Mm -hmm. Is that the way it has become? I think so. I think so, yes. I think when you look at the the ecosystem of the business groups, you've obviously got the British Chambers of Commerce, you've got the Federation of Small Businesses, the Institute of Directors to a certain degree, and I I've met an interest here that my first job was at the the IOD. And then the CBI always sits above them. But it does feel very much like publicly, at least, it represents the views of Britain's very largest businesses. And in fact, in the debate after all of these allegations have come out, which you're right, we have to be careful about what we say, but in, in the debate after all the allegations have come out, the question has become, what's the point of the CBI in today's world? And I think... I'm in a privileged position, obviously, as, as you have over the, over the years, to, to, to speak to a lot of CEOs and CFOs at those very large businesses who have extremely strong opinions, um, informed opinions, but who are absolutely terrified of saying them out loud. And it, it increasingly looks like the CBA, CBI serves almost only as a shield for some of those large businesses. Um, uh, obviously, as a journalist, but I think for the sake of democracy, I think it would be better if more of the arguments for business were put forward by business people rather than their trade body. And I think perhaps whatever's going on with the CBI these days um, may well see some of that return. That would be very good if it were mm. to happen. Very good. Some some years ago, we had uh, matters of uh, Brexit mm-hmm. where the CBI was voluble against it. Mm. Uh, and yet, the smaller companies, many, many of the smaller companies, were in favour. Yeah. 
I mean, as a business, I, I, you can. I think the CBI got itself into a terrible mess over over Brexit. You know, it, it took a very strong institutional position. It informed everything they did in the run up to the referendum, of course. But I think for me, the bigger mess they made was never quite the leadership at the time. Uh, don't count on Fairbairn, who's now on the board of HSBC. They they never seemed publicly to come to terms with the vote and to make their peace with it and to start thinking about opportunities therein. You can have a view in the run-up to it, but when the facts change, you need to change the body. And I think I think they've struggled to re-establish their relations with government, which if it is a lobbying organisation, is is sort of a, you know, that's a core skill is, is being able to talk to government. Top of the list, I would have thought. Yeah. Top of the list. Well, it doesn't really have a purpose otherwise. So, so. so, so, so let, let us hope that uh, whatever this recent nonsense is all about, it will result in a change at the CBI, I think, at management and attitude. I think that's, uh, I think I would, I'd be minded to agree with you on that. I think it's one of those things, that, like all these businesses that you look at from outside institutions, you know, I'm, I know a lot of pe- good people within the CBI who do a lot of valuable work, but you're right. As an institution at the very top level, the new DG Ray Newton Smith questions about whether the right person to appoint was an insider. I think. Yep. Um, whether she can find a new course for the CBI that brings it back to relevance, like you say, for those smaller businesses who are the backbone of the economy and the city as well. What about the city as a whole? Um, there's been a lot of negative talk about the city. Mm. Losing flotations to New York being one of the subjects under discussion, mm. but not the only one. What, what, what's your view on what's going on and what's, and what's gone wrong, if anything? Well, this, I mean, it's certainly a topic of discussion. We keep coming back to it. You know, yep. there's, there's two things that are, that are happening, particularly with regards to public markets, right? There's the, yes, the, the losing these bumper IPOs to New York. Yep. And there's historically underpriced equities, which allow typically what, what the Daily Mail would no doubt call the foreign raiders coming in with takeover bids at you know cheaper yeah. bids than they might. So those, the, the combination of those two starts to look like at least London's public markets are taking a bit of a battering. And I, unsurprisingly, have been in exactly the same conversations that everybody else in the city is. I was just sort of, God, this, this isn't very good. This is bad news. We're losing our luster. And then I've also been in conversations with people who talk to me about the fact that it might not be fantastic for our ego, but it doesn't necessarily shape the modern city in the way that it might have done 20 to 30 years ago if our equity markets are a little bit sleepy compared to New York. Um, obviously, for places like Numis or Peel Hunt who rely on these things, it's it's deeply problematic. But in the broader city, maybe we should sort of start looking about the, you know, the future of finance beyond derivatives or clearing or whatever it might be. And I think I come down about halfway between those views. And that is only through speaking to a CEO that I, I very much respect of a, of a financial platform who's seen a few crises and, and come through the other side usually usually better off than the one in and his view was that without properly functioning public markets the private market doesn't work either and that we end up with a just sort of gummy capital market and that we could potentially start to lose 
not just IPOs, but start to lose our places the obvious spot in Europe to put your capital and to invest. So that's sort of a, a loosey-goosey answer, perhaps. But it, I, I, don't, I don't join the, the, the massed armies who say that the one thing we absolutely have to do in the city is to re-attract these IPOs. I think there's a lot more to do. But I do think it matters, yeah. Thank you. Um, you've given a long answer, but a very interesting one. So taking that a bit further, what more should be done about the situation we're now in in order to improve things in the future? And in particular, what should the government be doing? Well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I think with all these things, there is a health warning. I'm going to go on a slight tangent. I'm often asked how local media like City AM or, or others can, you know, can survive in the modern world and what our strategy is to survive in the modern world. And... We have a number of good ideas, most of which we're executing, some of which we will execute in due course. But I always give the health warning that the easiest way for local media to survive in the 21st century would be for the BBC to radically slim down its operations because it, it eats up so much space, it's so much bigger than, than all the rest of us even put together that it, it, we struggle to sort of fight through. And when I think about the city and equity market, I think we always have to have this health warning that New York is so big and so ugly that we have to accept that it, one of the very good reasons that people float in New York is there's simply more capital there. <clears throat> and we can't magic that over the, the Atlantic overnight. With regards to what the city could do and what government can do and all these things, I think, move in lockstep. On the city side, there is still a lack of institutional analysis of modern companies that might be looking to float. One of the frustrations for One Disco, the company that had, well, there's a lot to talk about with One Disco with the potentially <laughs> accounting issues and Indeed. irregularities there. But prior to that, when there was still a bit of a tech darling, there were very few people, you see it, I mean, there were very few people in the city that really understood what they did. And in New York, people got it straight away because there was just a bigger pool of of brains that were working on this through the institutional, um, through the institutions of Wall Street, the analysts, the researchers, et cetera, et cetera. And that just doesn't exist here. So that's something the city needs to do. Again, first mover advantage, the first organization that does that, that really invests in that, I think would do very well for them. But I think with regards to government, we are now, it sounds trite, but I'd say just, for goodness sake, do something. Because we, <laughs> what, the, the biggest announcement with regards to the City of London in the um, in the recent budget by Jeremy Hunt was a review into how capital markets worked to build on a review of how the capital markets work, which was completed by Mark Austin, Freshfield's lawyer, about 16 months ago. Indeed. Which came alongside a review into the listings rules by Jonathan Hill yeah. and a fintech listing, a fintech review by Ron Khalifa. All very well respected, all good well pieces and, of product. And useful documents, yes. And they've sat on a vine somewhere. So what government can do is start to move forward with what are some pretty sensible suggestions. I don't think we should start chasing, you know, I, th I think it's very important that we make changes to listing rules in a way that is measured and tapered and that we don't start coming up with all sorts of extravagant products that allow founders to remain, you know, almost immune to the scrutiny of, of public markets. What I would say is that I do think purely on personalities involved, I think, and this isn't necessarily the most popular view uh, in the city, or not one that certainly some will quibble with, I think Nick Arathi at the, the FCA is 
more dynamic and more ambitious than he's given credit for in terms of making London a destination. Yep. My fear is just what may what the FCA may like to do is inevitably going to run into the political cycle. It's inevitably going to run into a feeling now post Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank that this, the city's in, you know, we're in another banking crisis for the yep. hills of the banking crisis. I don't think that's true, but I can yep. see the narrative. And therefore, these reforms are not really ra- radical reforms. They're just bringing things up so with the way modern businesses want to run themselves. Um, so that's, again, a long answer with perhaps a bit more pessimism about about reforms than, than we might otherwise have. So, so <coughs> there are no problems. There are only opportunities, one might say. You would hope that that is the way it's seen, but I fear in more politics that may not be true. I think. Scanning your paper this morning was an article about modern art, uh, which reminded me that I stumbled across a company a little while ago promoting non-fungible tokens <laughs> as a means of investing in modern art. Um, I'm not qualified to go down the route of non-fungible tokens, but what's your view on on? That whole sector of sort of invented money, like bitcoins and so on and so on. I am always have been and remain deeply sceptical about its long-term utility. Put it that way. I find non-fungible tokens a lot easier to understand. They have no intrinsic value except that which someone is willing to pay for it. But then you can make the same argument about art it doesn't have a value until so i I find that a lot easier it's created in a different way and uh, uh, but i find it easy to understand purely as a someone was someone finds some value in that they put a number on it somebody will need to sell it so i kind of I'm, i'm okay with that the crypto side of things there's no question that the underlying technology of blockchain is very interesting if this sort of shared ledger that in theory means accounting is is a lot easier and a lot more difficult to fudge Fine, I still haven't necessarily seen too many places find a utility for that. But crypto itself, we saw last year an awful lot of people who I don't think understood the financial risks lost a lot of money. Yep. And when that happens, you have to ask yourself whether those individuals are to blame or whether the sector is to blame or whether regulators are to blame. And... You can never stop people doing stupid things with their money, nor should we try. But I certainly think that allowing this industry just to grow with all sorts of effectively Ponzi schemes dotted around it is deeply dangerous. And I I struggle to understand why, again, we've been talking about crypto regulation for so long and, and precious little has happened. The industry has a defining libertarian streak i suppose but even but sensible libertarians recognize that there are always guardrails and many of the people i've spoken to in that industry don't believe that those guardrails should exist they don't you know believe in fiat currencies and it 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 became ideological for them and i think an awful lot of people got burnt in the process so again a long answer but without saying and again like you i I feel qualified to talk about it, but I wouldn't say I know everything about the industry. I personally struggle to see the utility and I struggle to see how that utility will develop over time. And therefore, I don't understand where the valuations are coming from. Thank you. I'd like to talk now about 
Andy the Man. Oh, goodness. I, I stumbled across a bit of your CV when I was uh, <laughs> looking into LinkedIn. One or two things I picked up on. How came you went to Berkeley University in Berkeley, California? Yeah. Uh, it was, I started my degree doing history and then the opportunity presented itself to do a, a year abroad in, in California as long as I sort of focused on American history. And I, I still, to this day, find American post-war history fascinating. Uh, the opportunity presented itself, and then I, I just sort of hung around for a long period of time, and I, I developed interest there and spoke to an awful lot of the professors, and I was living in a what can only be described as a hippie cooperative of 36 people where we all shared the, the housework and cooked for each other and had a council meeting every Sunday about whether or not we could invest in a new barbecue. Um, and I, and I had a tremendous time. And being in the Bay Area, 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, I was sort of half there, half here, really, was extraordinary to see that the, there was a feeling in the air at both Stanford and Berkeley that obviously this is post-financial crisis, credit crunch, that actually that was the opportunity, that was the moment to strike. Yeah. And there definitely is something about that American entrepreneurial spirit which... I don't know if we can replicate in the UK. I don't know if we should necessarily because it comes with its downsides. But being there was fascinating. And I, yeah, I would, uh, as ever, to anybody, young, mid, you know, late 20s, early 20s, late teens, university, whatever, if the opportunity to just go and be somewhere else for an extended period of time presents itself, I think it's a wonderful opportunity, even if you feel the pull of London dragging you back. Where does your experience tell you the American entrepreneurial spirit is now? There is still an appreciation in the States, I think, that failure is part of the business journey and part of the entrepreneurial journey. And I think in the UK there is a little more stigma that comes with setting something up and failing. Uh, those differences have always been mm. there. They are, as I think you're implying, slightly less so now mm. than used to be the case. But the time was learned when... A failure in America was accepted as a perfectly normal thing to find in your CV because mm -hmm. at least it proved you had a go. Yes. Whereas in this country, a, a failure was a black mark forever. Well, there was this extraordinary moment during the coalition when Vince Cable was business secretary where, and this idea was not rubbished immediately and it managed to be, I believe it was even put in a bill before it was killed. But... Um, that effectively, if you had three bankruptcies on your record, you could no longer be a director, yeah. which I just thought was the most extraordinary message yeah. to send to entrepreneurs. Where do I think the American entrepreneurial spirit is yeah. now? Uh, I think there is there is definitely some dulling of of that spirit, and I think partly that is because I th so many new businesses now in the States, entrepreneurial businesses in theory, are effectively living off the behemoths of Google, Meta, Amazon, etc. That many of them service these bigger players. Yep. And that is entrepreneurial spirit of a sort, but it's it's not far off corporatism in that sense of just accepting living off a large player that is almost too big. Um, and I do think, you know, what dulls entrepreneurialism most is arguably monopolies and I think we are in a world where accidentally almost we live in a, almost every industry there is a monopoly of one of those three <laughs> yeah. yes yes well uh, 
coming back to the UK for a second, mm. what, what, what can we be doing over here on particularly fintech matters? Mm. Yes, because I've got a feeling that some people have lost their way a bit in that area as well. Yeah, I th- well, that needs to be straightened up. Yes, I mean, the valuations that were coming out two years ago for some of these businesses were, were crazy, and there's probably been a you know, a, a decent corrective over the past year where a lot of those valuations and the raises have come down significantly, which yep. I think is is probably helpful for any business to actually know what they really are worth rather than, um, well, you're worth what someone's willing to pay, but giving them a bit more of a, a sense of, of reality, perhaps. I see fintech having two, the fintech sector having two very valuable roles. One, we've got a generation of young companies fighting against each other in a pretty cutthroat environment that will improve each other significantly and, and perhaps one one or two fundamentally will triumph in, in each bit of fintech. And the other thing is it's forcing the established players, those legacy organisations, to radically up their game digitally in a way that they might not perhaps have done so otherwise. I was talking to yeah, a mid-tier bank CEO just this week who was saying, we're, you know, we're never going to invest the R&D to be at the revolution of any fintech tech. Right. But they have an army of people in that building watching it, and as soon as they see something they like, they'll go away and think, right, how do we effectively copy with pride? Yeah. Which is a perfectly reasonable Nothing thing to do. Nothing wrong with that, is No, exactly. Your CV <coughs> jobs, mm. very interesting. Range, places you've been. Yeah. Uh, there's one that I have to ask you about. The sun. The sun. The sun. I expect you get often get asked about the sun. I do. I, I, I reason my, my reason is there was for a long time when it was one of my favourite newspapers, and I was full of admiration with the for, for it, and probably still would be if I was still reading it. Tell me about your experiences there. I adored my time there. It was adored is a strong word to use. I think there is something about. Especially when I was there at Sun, this is sort of 2017 to 2019, or so 2020 maybe. It was um, the Sun. It, it was in something of a bunker at that point. It was being attacked from all sides, from politicians, from social media, from kind of urban thought, really. And what I guess it would now be called woke culture. It wasn't called that even three years ago. And you do form a bit of a a band of brothers that you still feel like you're doing something valuable on a daily basis for your readers. And there are things that I wish we hadn't done when I was there, certainly. But there are also things that we did which we would never get credit for. We knew we were never getting credit for from, you know, doing book drives with Marcus Rashford, do, doing a huge series almost explaining things like Eid and Ramadan to readers that may have previously found those concepts quite alien and quite, you know, confusing and, and scary, dare I say it. So that was something I was very proud of and, and adored. It, it was just a fun place to be. You, you, there was very rarely did somebody say no to an idea, you know, which is which is always a fun place to be. It is. Uh, politi- and politically, you know, being at the Sun, writing a leader column in the Sun, writing the Sun says, and I was, you know, number two on the desk. John Perry, who's an absolute genius and someone I respect and, and I think is excellent in, in the journalism trade, was number one. But writing those Sun leader columns, you know, you did feel like you were speaking for an awful lot of people who perhaps 
sometimes feel quite disenfranchised and who do not necessarily have access to the corridors of power in the way that perhaps the readers of the FT do, for yes. us, for example. Yes, or the Telegraph. Yeah, and uh, so, yeah, some downsides. There are always downsides, and you know, I've certainly asked about it a lot. It's a lot easier for me to look at it with some distance now I've left than I was there when it always felt like everything was a personal attack, <laughs> especially <laughs> especially in my friend group of, you know, 20, 30-something North Londoners with professional jobs. It wasn't necessarily their newspaper of choice. Um uh, but no, I, I learned a tremendous amount from some very, very intelligent people. And uh, in journalism, it's a bit of a truism these, these days to say that the most difficult thing to do is write a Sun news story. Uh, but it is to, to get the level of information that they pack into 180, 200 words. Indeed. With some fun and some flair and some personality is quite, yes. it's quite the skill. Yes. And Isabel Weston, it has been a privilege to meet oh. you and talk to you this morning. Um, Thank you very much indeed. I believe this to have been, actually, your day off. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed it. This I have. Of your I, day off. I've certainly enjoyed having you here um, and talking for my listeners. Andy, thanks so much for coming. Absolute pleasure, John. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. This content is issued by Guild Financial Advisory Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conducts Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member of the Acquis Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decision regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Guild Financial Advisory. Please note that participants within this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. <laughs> <laughs>